Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. And today, I'm delighted to say that my guest is Nick Bloy, and we will be discussing health and well-being in the insurance industry. Now, Nick started his career as a lawyer, uh, but then saw the light and transferred to a role in HR, spanning recruitment and HR business partnering, spending a couple of years at Berwyn Leighton Paisner, and then another couple at Henderson Global Investors. But then, in 2016, he founded a consultancy called Wellbeing Republic, which is focused on inspiring people and organisations to thrive. So, Nick Bloy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Peter. Really pleased to be here. And uh, as I mentioned, you started out um, as a lawyer, but fairly quickly changed tack. So what caused you to do that? And how did you end up founding Wellbeing Republic? It kind of spanned from a few things. So law into HR seemed like a natural progression because I really liked the employment side of law, but was finding that things tended to go, as a lawyer, things tend to go wrong and you get them when they've gone wrong. Whereas in HR, I thought actually I could have a much more strategic involvement from an earlier stage so I could actually affect positive change at the source or what I thought would be the source, but invariably that turned out not to be the case. And that really led me towards uh, looking into well-being and understanding actually most of the drivers that drive our behaviour. Uh, and I find it absolutely fascinating to understand what motivates us, what drives us, uh, and how actually when we manage to harness our, our best mental state, we can we can operate at a much higher level. And that in combination with my own experience about six, seven years ago, I went through a period of mental ill health. Uh, and I think that really was for me a bit of a catalyst as well, a bit of a wake up call in one sense. Uh, but that, that experience really helped me to, to see that actually we're not necessarily working in the smartest way. So for me to really kind of figure out actually what are the what are the components of thriving and that's yeah. and what does well-being republic actually do a mixture of things anything from strategy but a lot of kind of one-to-one coaching and training with with organizations and individuals so uh, being able to help people to, to be at their best so that they can have those brilliant relationships both at work but also at home is, uh, is a big part of what we do now then um, health and well-being as a subject um, I'm delighted to say, something which has become far more evident in, in the last few years in the insurance world. You start to see it on lots, lots of websites, insurers' websites, in a way that just didn't exist um, three or four years ago. Uh, and in preparing for this podcast, I've looked at a number of those websites, and there's so much more exposure of, of mental health issues and, and, and related issues to that. You know, why do you think that is? Why has it suddenly become uh, a topic of, of importance? generally, but in insurance as well. I mean, I'd have to agree with you. I think the last two, three years has really seen a seismic shift in how we're talking about mental health. There's no doubt about that. I think there's a number of factors playing in. I think, you know, year on year, we're seeing increased rates of of mental ill health, both at work, but also in the general population. But you've got some also some brilliant people such as uh, Prince William and Harry, who are now talking about this much more openly. For a long, long time, there was a lot of stigma uh, and people really didn't want to be able to talk about the fact that they actually they may be struggling. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people out there with a big poker face on. We think they're fine, but actually below the surface, there's something, you know, bubbling away that maybe isn't. Absolutely. Well, it, it, it's a rare person who hasn't kind of got close to the edge or over the edge at some point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me now with what I do, it's so fascinating to almost be able to peer in and start to really see the telltale signs where people are really struggling when most people would just assume they're absolutely fine. You probably can't Mm. go a week or two without seeing something about mental health. And then more and more industry sectors, including the insurance industry, which is starting to do surveys and actually monitor people's mental health and and how they're coping as well. So I was going to ask about that. Is there any research... Uh, about well well being specifically within the insurance sector. So there's one there's research from one insurer which uh, spans two years. I think they started in t- 2018 where they surveyed about 250 brokers, which was I think the first of its kind for the insurance industry certainly that I've come across. And uh, some interesting results from that it was quite a small sample, but still some some useful results in terms of seeing I think one in five brokers contemplating leaving the industry due to stress. And I think 78% of brokers from the 2018 survey saying that they felt stressed at work at least once a week. Sorry, uh, what percentage was that? 78%. 78%? Yeah, so wow. quite large. Um, not as large as some other industries, but still a pretty significant proportion mm. who uh, are feeling stressed on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And um, is there anything else? I mean, when we were um, discussing this prior to the, the, the podcast itself, you, you mentioned that there'd been a survey back in the, what was it, 80s or 90s? Oh, uh, yeah, you're talking about, uh, so not quite research per se. Well, research in the, te- in, the, in the terms of Martin Seligman, who's a really famous US psychologist, so probably one of the top 100 psychologists of the 21st century, who was brought in by MetLife in the US because they had essentially uh, a program of recruiting about 5,000 new salespeople a year. But they were losing, they were hemorrhaging talent. This brings a new definition of hemorrhaging talent. They were losing half of the people within one year. And by, I think, the fourth year, they'd lost four-fifths of people hmm. that they'd recruited. But they were spending about 30,000 on, on training for the, over the first two years. So if you just do the numbers, that adds up to $150 million in training. Wow. Of which they were losing pretty much 37.5 million within year one um, because people had left. And as you think about sustainability of a business, that that just simply is not sustainable. It's it's not great. It's not great. No. And so at that point, Martin Sutherland was drafted in because, interestingly, their method of recruitment was very much based around the standard industry test, Mm -hmm. which people would take if they passed, plus also, you know, meet and greet and making sure they were the right fit for the company, they would be onboarded. Martin Sullivan came in and said, actually, what I'd like to do is also uh, implement a, a second test, a test for optimism. So looking at what people's optimum, optimism levels, so how do they explain bad events? Would, did they look at it and it was kind of debilitating, defeating, or was it something that they could bounce off and grow, grow mm-hmm. from? So they kind of had some inbuilt resilience, essentially, in terms of how they were approaching these types of situations. And the outcome from introducing that test was phenomenal. So what they found is when they started measuring for this and recruiting specifically for this, the top 50% of optimists outsold the the bottom 50% by 21% in the first year Mm -hmm. and by 57% in the second year. So over two years, I think something around the 37% more sales essentially for those people in the top half of optimism, just looking at that as a trait by itself. He then brought in we wanted to have a bit of fun with this. He decided mm-hmm. to bring in and, and kind of made the case to CEO, look, I know some people have failed your industry test, but they've excelled at my optimism test. And they did some of the best sales of all. So even though they hadn't passed the industry, st- industry test, they were still doing really, really well um, because they had this brilliant um, way of seeing setbacks. 
And invariably in a sales role, it's quite hard because I think nine in 10, you know, cold calls are going to result in a, in a, fa- in a failure. Uh, one in 10, you'll get a sale essentially. So it's quite uh, demoralizing after a while. But actually, if you've got a, this optimistic way of viewing things, suddenly you start seeing setbacks, not as something that's inherently bad about you, but something that is imminently doable if you apply yourself in the right way at the right time. And, and we talk about optimism in this context, is it, uh, I mean, is optimism as, as most people would, would regard it as, you know, I, I think of optimism as, you know, tomorrow will be a sunny day sort of kind of uh, approach. And that's, so there's no scientific definition. It basically is, they are optimistic there people, is, but yeah, they think so that tomorrow will be better than today. So, I mean, that's a really nice, easy definition to use, but actually Seligman and, uh, and a number of other colleagues have kind of come up with a definition of what pessimism looks like. And that is very much thinking about the three P's, as he calls it, of pessimism. And that is whether it's personal, so whether someone kind of personalises the things that happen to them. So if someone shouts at you, for example, you say, oh, it's my fault, rather than they're having a bad day. Um, It's also the fact that it may be pervasive. So what I mean by that is, is it uh, something that's uh, very distinct to this particular thing? So, you know, I've had a bad call with this person and that's it, or it actually... Is it the fact that I'm terrible at sales and I'm terrible at everything else that I even try? So it's kind of almost seeping into everything, all the aspects of my life, not just this one particular thing. And then the, the last piece of it is whether it's um, permanent. So whether or not I can change the situation. And for pessimists, it's very much like this is terrible. It's, it's a cloudy day. It's going to remain cloudy forever. There's nothing I can do about it. And and that really, that if, when you've got those three Ps in combination... You, you really kind of get to the, the crux of pessimism and, and you'll have this inner narrative that people have in their, in their head. None of us talk about it because <laughs> we don't do that. You know, we'll talk about a broken leg quite openly, but we don't talk about the, the inner narrative that we have going around in our head. But actually what the research shows is that invariably we pick up this inner narrative from, from generally from, from our upbringing, so, which will tend to be our primary caregiver. And we'll pick up how they've reacted to setbacks and adopt, as a, adopt it as our own style. Uh, and that will then have a pretty profound effect on the rest of our life. Because what we know from the research, and it's not just about whether you're making sales or not, optimists tend to live on average about 10 years more than a pessimist. Okay. That, that, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a cause of slight concern because uh, you asked me to do a, uh, an optimism test um, online one, which was organized through uh, Authentic Happiness, so yep. Martin Seligman's um, thing. So if anyone on the podcast wants to do that, it's... Uh, if you type in authentic happiness into Google, you, you'll get there. Um, and it's one of the questionnaires on, on the, the Penn University website. Um, and uh, I, I did it, and um, I, I came out as moderately pessimistic, uh, which you're now telling me means I'm going to die early, which is a, a tad unfortunate. Um, interestingly, there was also a, a, a hopefulness test, and I came out as moderately hopeless Ouch. on that, which uh, is, is a bit harsh, I think. But anyway, that, that got me thinking about um, how that applies to insurance, because insurance you have the two sides of insurance the side that underwrites or sells the insurance and the side that sorts out the claims and the side that sorts out the claims are staffed by people who are like lawyers like me Um, in fact there are lots of lawyers who who do claims and um, presumably a bit like you're saying most most lawyers that they are a bit pessimistic may not be awfully pessimistic but a bit pessimistic Um, whereas conversely the underwriters uh, who sell the policies are probably going to be more optimistic, um, I suspect. And in fact, I know that there'd be many claims people who'd say that the underwriters are far too optimistic <laughs> um, in, in, in their underwriting. 
Um, so anyway, this isn't leading to a question. It's basically stating if you ever want to do any research, then it seems to me insurance is, is the place to do it. Okay, that's uh, good to know. But maybe, well, I'll point Martin Seligman in that direction. <laughs> um, can you learn optimism? So if, if someone like me is moderately pessimistic, do I have any hope? It'd be really mean of me right now to turn around and say no, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> then you'd be like, well, I'm destined for, for a life of misery and pessimism and, and hopelessness. But uh, the good news is absolutely you can learn to be more optimistic. I mean, invariably, it's it's just a, a bundle of habits that we've developed over time. And, and thinking habits are no different to and habits such as sleep and exercise and things. It's just automatic thoughts that we've developed over time, which become our automatic reaction mm-hmm. to to something. So, I mean, if you think about the fields of psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy, that's very much kind of rooted in this idea of we can challenge our automatic thoughts and challenge them in a way that we start to look for alternate explanations which are more positive in in their way of being. So rather than, you know, if someone shouts at you and you, you personalize it, you can think, okay, well, maybe there's another explanation for that. Maybe it's because they haven't slept very well or, you know, someone pushed, shoved them on the tube this morning. So being able to start to challenge your inner narrative is, is, is quite a powerful way of starting to do that. We know that, for example, pessimism combined with rumination is actually a pro- quite high indicator and risk towards depression. Invariably, if you're, you're playing negative thoughts over and over and over in your head a lot of the time, it's going to have an effect on your long-term mood. Okay, so are there simple techniques that we can... Uh, yeah. used to, to get out of negative mindset without going into to, something more positive without going to a therapist yes <laughs> exactly. uh, gratitude three, journaling three ones basically yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so gratitude journaling is a really proven way of doing this so again for some it sounds a little bit airy fairy but if you think about how your brain works the way that you think and the, the what you're scanning for if we're constantly scanning for the worst case scenario mm-hmm and so if you do that on a daily basis and you're constantly scanning for negatives your brain gets really really good guess what? It's scanning for those negatives. And so when you then forget that maybe life isn't always going to be quite as dark and as somber as what you're making out when you're doing your job and apply it to the rest of your life, unfortunately, it's it's going to start tainting that as well. But by practicing gratitude, and a really obvious one, for example, is to keep a gratitude journal. And at the end Mm -hmm. of each day, and do it on paper rather than on a phone, because it's it's been shown to have greater effect, to write down three things that you're grateful for that have happened that day. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're training your brain to start scanning for the positives rather than just automatically scan for the negatives. And by that, you can start to readdress that imbalance of we already have this propensity for negativity. It's what kept the human race alive for millennia. But if we practice it too often, it becomes entrenched and we can sometimes make it a lot harder for ourselves to then see the positives, which actually are all around us if we just stop and look and notice. So, so developing an attitude of gratitude to... Uh, wow, yes, you, to, should, uh, you should trademark that. I, th- I think someone might have done that already, okay. but yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, so, we, so that's a nice simple thing which we can do to positively affect um, our, uh, our mindsets. Um, but are there things that we can remove? Are there external things that can adversely affect our optimism and, and therefore, from what you are saying earlier, on our resilience? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, as you talked about at the beginning, well-being is a very broad subject. But I think a lot of people, sometimes something really simple thing, such as sleep, can have a detrimental effect on our ability to be positive. So great article in The Times uh, recently talking about burnout, which is becoming an increasing trend across many industry sectors, including the insurance industry. And when you're in this kind of chronic fight or flight, so highly stressed, 
you will see more negatively. So you will already be, you'll already be more pessimistic. Why? Because your brain is in high alert thinking that something bad is going to happen. So it's scanning for bad things to happen. Now, what we know from people who are sleep deprived, their amygdala, which is their fear center, emotional center of the brain, mm -hmm. but it's scanning for, for the negatives, is about 60% more reactive in those who are sleep deprived. So it's already scanning for negative things. We also know from the research that you're more likely to have suicidal thoughts having had a really bad night's sleep. So again, because it's changing the biochemistry of your brain, the way that you're thinking, and therefore the quality of the thoughts that you're having. So even something as simple as sleep can have a tangible effect on how optimistic you are the next day. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, without going too deep into my kind of using this as a therapy session for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, yesterday, I mean, I was, I was grumpy all day at work. I mean, my colleagues will tell you that I'm grumpy all day at work all the time. But um, I was particularly grumpy yesterday and suddenly realization I had slept really badly that night, and I was just... You know, it was just very, very short fuse for everything. Yeah, so. and I think we need to learn not to beat ourselves up when that happens because invariably some of that will be biological in terms of how it's working and how it's shifting, how the brain works. But other practical things as well. I mean, you know, we know exercise is very good for, for, for mental health and, and for putting us much more into the, in the, into the positive mindset once we've got over the sweat and the hoffing and puffing and everything else. Um, but also surrounding ourselves with positive people. I mean, it can be really easy, especially, you know, in workplaces to just end up getting bogged down with all the negativity. But if you know there are some brilliant people in there who are positive and bring out the best in you, hmm. go and spend more time with them because that will lift your mood. That will have a ripple effect. Alternatively, I might bring their mood down, but... Uh... There is that, but hopefully <laughs> if there's more positive than negative, they'll hopefully bring you up. They, I'm sure they will. I'm <laughs> sure they will. Um, and obviously, presumably, things like alcohol as well. I mean, alcohol kind of traditionally uh, was a, a big thing in the insurance market and yeah. you know, the insurance market was was fueled on on wine and beer um, but that's radically changed in the last in the last few years and obviously Lloyd's brought in uh, an alcohol ban in 2017 or thereabouts um, and presumably you'd regard that as a hugely positive step for overall well-being I think so I remember seeing that story and kind of almost pondering like are people actually going out and drinking a bit at lunch oh yes yeah I was just like, that seems crazy because obviously when you, you know, you look at the research and it's like, yeah, you, your brain isn't functioning anywhere near as well as it, it should do after you've had, you know, even one or two drinks, right? Um, so that was quite surprising in itself. But I mean, yes, I think an extremely positive move in terms of, you know, removing that. But again, I think we probably need to look at the underlying reasons as to why people felt that alcohol were, was such a necessary element of the work they did. And, and you know, maybe some of that that catalyst and it'd be interesting again to look into and speaking to people to understand you know did they feel compelled to drink as much because that was a dumb thing because you, you want to fit in and therefore you do it or did you generally generally feel that you you wanted to drink at that time and in which case you know what was driving that you know mm. was it because actually maybe you're you know you're having to have these meetings and you're maybe suffering from social anxiety and therefore alcohol is a really good way to try and numb some of that anxiety the other thing, um, of course, uh, that's been highlighted recently in the press within the insurance world is uh, the dangers of bad behaviour, um, what is being described as non-financial misconduct. You know, the FCA has raised it as an issue. And Lloyds um, has previously set up a, a bullying and, and harassment helpline um, together with a number of other um, initiatives. So it is being confronted and dealt with. But just so we can put it into context, you know, what, what causes that sort of, I'd say, non-financial misconduct, as they describe it. Um, and what can we do to change that? The million-dollar question, which I think we haven't quite pinned down just yet. But, I mean, from a well-being perspective, thinking about things that drive 
those sorts of behaviours. I think we can all probably attest to the fact that when we're in a good place, we don't really feel the need to bully someone else or harass someone else, whatever it may be. So I think there's probably an element of the fact that people are feeling stressed. We know from research that uh, when you have cortisol, even at low levels, mixed with testosterone, for example, you will see more bullying behaviour. People... Uh, in that fight or flight state are going more into self-preservation mode. They therefore are trying to cling to things such as power, autonomy. And as part of that, there will be some shuffling of the ranks, that sort of stuff. And you'll start seeing this sort of behavior creep out because people essentially just, well, their brain is trying to fight for their own life, even though actually that's not what's going on. We haven't evolved in the kind of millions of years that we've had our brain, unfortunately. We've evolved magnificently in terms of being able to create beautiful buildings like the one we're in today. But uh, our brain hasn't evolved to really differentiate what, you know, what really poses a threat to our survival and what doesn't. And so this kind of this this increasing level of stress that I think, you know, from the surveys coming out around, you know, the the amount of heavy workloads people are facing, the increased regulation, uh, volume of paperwork people are having to deal with, um, all increasing this. And then you're getting that kind of toxic stress potentially culminating with all these kind of biology within us causing, I think, some of these behaviors to kind of manifest themselves. So uh, what sort of things can people do? I mean, it's all the standard stuff, isn't it? It's going out, exercising, going for a walk or something at lunchtime. It's surrounding yourself with positive people, being self-aware, presumably, as well. Self-awareness is a huge thing. There's uh, some really interesting studies showing, I think, 90% of people would suggest that they're um, self-aware. Only about 10 to 15% of people actually are. Uh, So that's a big thing. If we can start getting self-awareness right, I think that would be a good start. But uh, yeah, all of those things, hugely important. I think we need to, I think and the insurance industry has done great on this, right? They've been pushing a lot more and I've seen some great stuff happening around the mental health space in terms of raising awareness, trying to break that stigma. And I think that's a lot of it as well, right? If people aren't a- able to, to speak up, you know, they're, they're, they're almost feeling isolated in, in itself. And so that's, again, potentially going to see some negative behavior spiraling out from that. So creating that safe space for people, thinking about psychological safety, for example. Mm-hmm. So do people do feel that they can speak up and call a helpline or speak to someone when things aren't going quite there, right? And they are struggling with, with workload or whatever it may be. I think can potentially really start to help. But other things as well as, you know, things that we aren't aware of, unconscious bias training stuff, obviously will help as well to raise that level of awareness around, you know, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, uh, and how the, how it manifests itself mm. can really help. Okay, well, I mean, we're, we're, we're running low on time, but I want, to do, uh, I want to do an exercise, or at least, Nick, I want you to take us through yeah. an exercise, because I want everyone at the end of this podcast to be feeling good. Um, so do you want to take us through an exercise that will hopefully help our well-being yeah sure we uh so we talked about gratitude a bit earlier didn't we so why don't we do something around that now what i'd like you to do is first of all just take 10 seconds to try and figure out something maybe in the last week or in the last day um if you've had a really good day uh that you are grateful for and that could be anything from someone you know holding the door open for you to you know you having a really good conversation with a friend or family member whatever it may be just take a little moment there to pick something a real experience that, you know, actually filled you with a bit of joy. And then what I'd like you to do is just close your eyes. And just re- what I'd like you to do is just, just for about 30 seconds to 45 seconds, just really try and immerse yourself back in that experience and just savour that experience. And I'm going to go quiet for a little bit just to allow you to really immerse yourself for a moment. And as you're in that moment, just really try to recreate the feeling that you experienced. 
try and picture what was happening. And then just gently, if you did close your eyes, just gently open your eyes and bring yourself back into the room. How did that feel? It was rather lovely. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, I was thinking about kind of, uh, you know, times with the family, really. Just, uh, you know, with, uh, with my kids. Yeah, just, just thinking about watching a film. So it probably releases the endorphins and things like that and just calms everything, doesn't it? Just calms your whole body. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Gratitude has a hugely calming effect. Our brain can't focus on two things very well at once. So if you're grateful, you can't also be angry. So it definitely brings you back over to your parasympathetic yeah. nervous system in terms of that respect. Um, and again, the more you do this and the more you experience it, actually the more of a positive effect it will have on your, your overall life. But it will also mean that your experiences day to day will probably improve as well because there's this really interesting stat which shows that our brain really only processes a very minute fraction of the, of the stuff we're being bombarded with. So I think we take in about 11 million bits of data a second at a subconscious level, but we only consciously process, so see, uh, 50 bits. So if you're prone to negativity, what you're, you're doing is you, those 50 bits of information are not randomly selected. They're selecting precisely the negative bits that are in, in the environment around you as opposed to choosing the positive things that are also out there in the environment around mm. you. So by practicing gratitude, what we do is start to tell our brain, give me the good stuff. Yeah. I'll do that then. I think, I think we, have, we have just resolved the insurance industry. Fantastic. Everything about it, that's fantastic. Um, finally, what lesson have you learned that uh, you could give to someone starting out in the insurance industry? Um, I think stay curious. That's the biggest thing in what I do now. In, and actually, if I look back, I think I would have had a much happier life earlier on in my career if I'd just been curious rather than putting too much pressure on myself. That's really helpful. Nick Bloy, thank you so much indeed. That was wonderful. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts and of course our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes.